Oh, good to see you this morning. Welcome again to The Bridge. If you're a guest and you just came in and missed our official welcome at the beginning of the service, you're in the first of three services here at The Bridge. This is our traditional service where, as you just experienced, we sung some of the great hymns of the faith. Then at 10.30, we have a contemporary service, and at noon, we have yet a different kind of contemporary service. So guests, try them all, and uh, we hope you'll find one that you love and be part of The Bridge family every single week. We're in a series entitled Life After Life. This is actually the fourth week of the series. And we've talked about so far questions like, is there really such a thing as life after life? And we concluded, not just from a biblical standpoint, but from a scientific and medical standpoint, that there's strong evidence that, yes, this is not it. There is life after this life. As believers, we always want to go to the Word of God and, and check things out. And so in week two, we, we asked, how do these near-death experiences that are such a rave today and so popular today, how do they stack up to Scripture? And we found that they were not necessarily contradictory at all. Many of the things that people say they experience in near-death experiences uh, have a biblical connotation to it. Last week, we looked at why does everyone in these near-death experiences seem to make it to heaven? And although we could not come with a final, absolutely conclusive answer to that question, last week I presented you several different options that I believe that, that could be possible in answering that question. In the end, I know this. Here's where I'm at. I do know that there is life after life. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And I know how to get to that life after life. And it's not through uh, life after life by Raymond Moody, or it's not through proof of heaven by Dr. Eben Alexander, any of those other books. I know that because my faith is in the word of God. And the word of God has declared for centuries that this isn't it. There is life after life. Now, we left off last week and said, well, okay, we know all that. So as believers, we want to know what is that life going to look like? What's going to happen? Well, let's start out by looking at a scripture because some of you are saying right now, now hold on, we, we can't know that. See, some of you are Bible scholars and you know 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where scripture says, as it's written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You say, we, we, we can't know what that life's going to be like. Now, here, here's the problem. Sometimes we stop just a little early, and we get one verse, and we stop there. If you were to go on into the very next verse, verse 10, here's what Scripture says. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. See, there is. God says, for the believers, for the body of Christ, he has given wisdom. He has given guidance in all of this. In fact, the rest of the passage goes on this way. Beginning in the second part of verse 10, 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. In other words, God gives us revelation. God gives us insight. God gives us scriptural understanding as, as we study and as we read the Bible. God will enlighten us. He'll bring things to our mind. And this is a special gift that not everyone has, by the way. This is for the children of God. This is for those who have trusted Christ. 
Look what Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. Why? Read it with me. Because they're spiritually discerned. See, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, so much happens. We're given spiritual gifts. We're renewed. We're stamped with his, his guarantee of eternal life. And he also begins to increasingly open the door of understanding to the things of the Spirit of God. That's why so many people think, oh, they hear the Bible, they go, oh, I, I, I just can't. Well, because they're not a believer, see? And they can't understand things that God reveals to those who have trusted him. Now, the problem is this. The problem's not that the Bible doesn't tell us anything about heaven. That's not the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is that we don't pay attention to what it does tell us. We kind of just gloss over so much. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to play Sherlock Holmes. How many of you know who Sherlock Holmes is? And his process was what? Through deductive reasoning, through deductive investigation, he would solve these cases. And they were fabulous cases. I love the Sherlock Holmes stories and, and movies and all like that. We're going to play Sherlock Holmes. And we're going to look at what Scripture has revealed to us about this life after life. And it's really going to be fascinating. Let's start this morning with this question. Where is heaven? Where is heaven? Where is it at? Where is it going to be? What is heaven all about? Where is it out there in, in the cosmos? Well, before I answer that question, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you believe that God keeps his promises? If you believe that, say amen. amen. I believe God keeps his promises. Scripture tells us that is exactly true. In the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 16, beginning in verse 15. And by the way, I have notes for you after the service again. So you don't feel it. I've got to write everything down. If you go to the resource table, I have all these notes for you after the service. All right, so 1 Chronicles 16, verse 15 says, He remembers his covenant forever. God does keep his promises. We can be absolutely sure of that. But in this particular instance, notice that he doesn't say that God remembers his covenants, plural. He says he remembers his covenant because there's one promise. There's one covenant above all the other covenants that God is absolutely going to keep. And, and we, might, we might not be mindful of that. It goes on to say, the word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as a what? Everlasting covenant. Now we can take a peek at this covenant that he made with Abraham. Way back in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 17, beginning with verse 8, God now is speaking to Abram who is the father of Judaism, the father of the, of the Israeli nation. And he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. That's quite a promise. That's quite a covenant he makes to Abram, isn't it? Later on, 
that covenant is reinforced with David, who was that great king of Israel, the, the, the great one who slew Goliath. And, and in 2 Samuel, Samuel was an Old Testament prophet. In chapter 7, verse 16, he says, Your, speaking of King David, house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, David comes from the lineage of Abraham. He's a descendant of Abraham. So now, at this point, God is declaring that he's going to pass that Abrahamic covenant on now through the lineage, through the family of David himself. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, but didn't the Jewish people lose God's favor when they rejected Jesus as their Messiah? Isaiah talks about that. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah talks about how Israel kind of continuously would, would rebel against God and what God's attitude was toward him. And so in this size, we think, well, is God done with Israel? Look what Isaiah says. Isaiah 54, 8 says, in a surge of anger, this is God speaking now, in a surge of anger, I hid my face from you, what? For a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So, God is not done with Israel. Yes, right now in this current dispensation of, of time and church history, God has passed on to the Gentiles, to you and me, the same privilege that he had originally given to Israel, and that was to declare his glory to all people in all nations. And so now, Israel kind of in a, is in a, a state of suspended animation, but God's not done with them. God will keep his covenant with them. How, does this passage sound familiar to you? It's one that we bring out at Christmas, and we talk about at Christmas a lot. Again, Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will what? Be no end. He will reign on David's throne. Remember, David had, had, had received that Abrahamic covenant over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and what? Forever. It says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In other words, the zeal that God has that he will fulfill his promises. The zeal that God has that he will keep his covenants. And not only is that true for Abraham and David and Jacob and Isaac, that's true for you and me. God has that zeal. He says, I will do what I have promised I will do. You can mark it down. Daniel, that Old Testament prophet, prophesying about the same thing in Daniel 7.14, speaking prophetically of Messiah, who we knew now as Jesus. He says, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Over and over again, all throughout Scripture, God says this over and over again. He will accomplish this. Now, he originally talked about Jacob, and he passed it on to Isaac, or, or Abraham to Isaac, and then to Jacob, then to David, and, 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 and now he's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Now, so to the questions, do you believe that God keeps his promises, we have to say what? Yes. If that's true, and all these verses that we looked at are true, then where is heaven? 
It has to be on earth. It has to be on earth because God has promised an everlasting land. God has promised an everlasting covenant. Now, I know some of you say, no, 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 no. Just back up that bus a minute here. Those biblical authors that we just looked at are talking about the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. What's the millennial kingdom, some of you ask? Well, Scripture says that when Jesus returns, his glorious second coming, he will establish on earth a millennial kingdom, a 1,000-long-year kingdom. See, not everyone will die at, 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 before the second coming. Be a, a lot of people continue to live their normal life. And it says the angels or the army of heaven will come back and reign with him. By the way, that's us. We'll come back after having been raptured out. We'll come back and we will reign with him during this thousand-year kingdom. But let me ask you a question. A millennium is a thousand years, right? Is a thousand years forever and ever? No, it's a thousand years. So he must be talking beyond that. See, what they're talking about is the ultimate day when God will fulfill his covenant with Israel. Now, look at this passage. You say, how do you know that? How do you know it's not the millennial kingdom? Well, let's compare some Old Testament and New Testament passages real quick. Old Testament, again, prophet Isaiah, chapter 60, verse 19 says, the sun will, be no, will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. Now, Isaiah is prophesying about the future, isn't he? The way, I mean, this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is born, just to give you a benchmark. Now, compare what Isaiah says, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is born, to what John says in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, having received from God the revelation of the end times and the beginning of the eternal kingdom. Look what John says. He says, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, Isaiah, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is born. John, speaking now, by the way, at the very end. Now we are entering the threshold of the eternal experience. Isaiah says, you know what? When that happens, you won't need a sun. You won't need a moon anymore because the presence of God, his Shekinah glory will be your light. Later, John is inspired by the Holy Spirit to say that same thing. He's saying, you know, in the eternal experience, God's Shekinah, his brilliance, his light will fill in light heaven. Now, this truth should not take us by surprise. This is a constant throughout the entire Bible. This isn't some New Testament stuff. This isn't stuff just for, well, believers and Christians and it doesn't pertain to the Jews because it's throughout the entire Bible. Look again at a couple of scriptures, Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, God says through the prophet Isaiah, I will create what? New heavens and a what? A new earth. Isaiah 66, 22. As the what? New heaven and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So will your name and descendants endure. Speaking to Israel. 
Now let's jump forward to New Testament times. The Apostle Peter, 2 Peter 3.13. But in keeping with his what? Does God keep his promises? Yeah. We are looking forward to a what? A new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In other words, here's God's promise that one day God is going to destroy the current heavens and earth and he's going to create a new heavens and earth, heavens and earth and according to Peter that will be the home of the righteous. Now, if we stop and think about it, heaven being on earth makes perfect sense. God has never given up on his original plan for humankind to live on and to manage his creation. That was it from the very beginning. Before Adam and Eve fell into sin, God created man, God created woman. He put them in the garden. He said, all of this is yours. All of this is yours. And you will have dominion over it all, over the land, over the animals. You will have dominion over it all. That was God's plan for humankind. That plan has never changed. In fact, somehow we've managed to overlook an entire biblical vocabulary that reinforces that exact point. Think of so many of the theological terms that we use. Terms like restore, redeem, regenerate, return, resurrect. All of those words begin with that little prefix re, re, which means what? To rebuild, to renew, to recreate, to restore. See, it's all about action that is designed to change things back to a healthier place. Take redemption. That's to buy back what was formerly owned. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for what? Our redemption, to buy back. God bought back. Scripture says that we are God's possession. We have been bought with a price, and the price was the blood of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. He bought us back because we had fallen into sin. How about the word reconciliation? Scripture says that we are reconciled with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Reconciliation means the restoration or reestablishment of a prior friendship. We have a word like renewal. The Bible says that, that for those who are in Christ, the old is gone and all things have been made new. We have been renewed, meaning to make new again. Restoring to the what? Original state. Then we look at words like resurrection. Becoming physically alive again after death. All these things reminding us that God is at work and that God is going to change our state. God's original plan will be fulfilled. It will be. Think about it. To do otherwise, God would be conceding to Satan a victory. God would be saying, you know what, here's how I established it. It was my plan, it was my intent that I would create all of this and that I was going to put humankind over to, to, to run it and to rule it and to manage it and to enjoy it. But you ruined it, Satan. You ruined my whole plan. See, to do otherwise, God would be saying, you know what, Satan, you got one up on me. You won that one. And we know Satan hasn't won anything, has he? Nor will he ever win anything. So what does 2 Peter 13 again say? But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new earth and a new heaven. 
Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? How many have been to the Grand Canyon? Now, those of us who have been to the Grand Canyon, we understand this. When we come back from that vacation and we try to tell other people about the Grand Canyon, you can't find words. You, you, you just can't find words to describe what you saw. It, it is surreal. It, I remember when I stood looking over the canyon, it, it was like I couldn't believe it was real. It was like I'm, I'm looking at this painting or something. It's just you can't find words. Anybody ever been to the, the Alps, the Swiss Alps, and seen those? Yeah, I, I got to see the Alps on a concert tour. I took all through, through Europe one, one time before I got into ministry and I was playing trumpet professionally and all that kind of stuff. And I, I'm telling you, the beauty of the Alps, you, you cannot describe it. It's indescribable. Maybe you've seen one of those beautiful mountain scenes with a crystal clear lake that reflects everything around it. And it's absolutely beautiful. Or we here in Florida certainly understand the majesty and the indescribable beauty of sunrises and sunsets. Well, fill in your picture. What is the most beautiful, creative event and experience you've ever had? Whether it be the canyon, whether it be the Alps, whether it be some beautiful lake, whether it be the sunrises and sunsets, understand this. What you are looking at in all its majesty and beauty is terribly, terribly marred. It's terribly mutated. It's a terrible representation of what God originally created. In fact, Scripture declares to us that creation itself is waiting in anticipation for the things of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Paul writes about it in his letter to the Romans in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19. says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. In other words, for all of this to be fulfilled. All of God's promises to be fulfilled. It says, For the creation was subjected to what? Frustration, to decay, to marring. Not by its own choice, by the way, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And who was that? That was man. That was humankind. In hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In other words, creation itself waits in expectation to be restored to what it originally was before sin entered into the world and brought decay and mutations and deterioration and destruction into it. When God creates the new earth, everything will be radically restored to its original glory. That's where 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard the beauties of that world nor has entered into the imagination of the hearts. That's the kind of world God is going to make. And he's going to do it with a new heaven and a new earth. But, but, but well, now wait a minute. What about all those gates of pearls and streets of gold and walls of jasper that we heard about growing up in Sunday school? What, what about that? Well, remember we asked the question, where is heaven? And we showed a picture of the cosmos out there. Well, actually, there is a part of the new heaven and the new earth out there somewhere. 
It's, it, it's out there somewhere. There's a part of it out there. Now, is it out there and somewhere hidden in outer deep space? I don't know, maybe. I tend to think it really exists right here among us, but on a different level and different understanding of a different dimension of time and space. What Scripture says about the end times? Revelation 21, 1. This is after the judgments and after all the terrible things of the tribulation period and all that. God has now bound Satan for eternity. And he's destroyed the, the old heaven and the old earth. He's created the new heavens and the new earth. And John now sees this vision from God. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now look what he says. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And so what happens, see, is that which is out there now, that part of the new heaven, new earth, that is the holy city, the place where God dwells, will come down to the new earth, will come down from the new heavens, and will be the new capital city of the eternal empire in the new earth in the capital of Israel, which is what? Jerusalem. John 14, Jesus declares this, beginning in verse 1. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's speaking specifically right to his, his original 12 disciples. He says, trust in God, also trust in me. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. See, what Jesus, I believe, is speaking about there is that holy city. The place where our departed souls go until the resurrection, until we come back to the new heavens and the new earth. He says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with, to be with me that you may be where I am also. What's Jesus saying? He said, I'm coming back. And he said, in the meantime, I'm preparing a place for you. I love that old song we used to sing. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. In that bright land where we'll never grow old. Y'all remember singing that? See, it's true. It's true. He's preparing it for us right now. One day he'll create a new heaven, new earth. And in majesty, the holy city will come down and descend on the new earth. And that's where Christ will reign forever and ever. That's where he'll restore his promise to Israel. But tragically, not every man, not every woman will get to experience it. That's the tragedy of it. See, Jesus says in John 14, 6, people were asking about life and eternity and all that. And Jesus said, he answered, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus says, I'm the only way. The only way you can get there is through me. What, what, what do you mean, Jesus? Well, Paul again, in that verse we use so often here at the bridge, because it's so descriptive of what Jesus means when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God, as we saw last week, his predisposition and his passion is for every 
human being to experience that beautiful eternal kingdom and that new heaven and that new earth. That's his predisposition. That's what he's all about. And God has made that opportunity available to everyone. No exceptions. Everyone has that opportunity. It's only one condition that God places on it. It's not how much money you give to a church. It's not how much about service you give to a church. All those are important for other reasons. But here's what it says, Romans 10, 8 and 9. It says, what does it say? What does the Bible say about eternity? What does the Bible say about eternal life? What does the Bible say about the forgiveness of sins? It says the word is near you. Again, emphasize. It's right there. It's right here before you. It goes on to say, it is in your mouth and it's in your heart. It's that close. It's right here on the tip of your tongue. It's right here in your heart. And it goes on to say that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. In other words, if you humble yourself and you say, Jesus, I agree. I accept that when you said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. I accept that that is truth. And I accept that that is just. And I accept that there's no other way back to God than through what you did when you died on the cross. Because what does it go on to say? If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, then what? You will be saved. You'll be saved from what? You'll be saved from eternal separation from God. You'll be saved from being thrown out of that beautiful kingdom of God. You'll be saved from the eternal effects of sin. God says, it's right here. It's right here. All you got to do is receive it. Here it is. I'm going to give it to you right now. You know, right now, you can receive that right now. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're here today and you're still wondering, what's going to happen to me when I die? You don't have to wonder that. Jesus died on the cross to take care of that issue. And he says, it's right here. I did it as a nine-year-old boy. 1963, on Palm Sunday, in a schoolhouse where our church was meeting and establishing a church in Youngstown, Ohio. And they had an old-fashioned Baptist altar call, and I went down there as a little nine-year-old boy and fell on my knees. I remember my Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Mook, came up on one side of me. My mom came up on the other side, and he knelt down and prayed with me. And I confessed with my mouth, Jesus, I know you're real. Jesus, I know you died on a cross for me. Jesus, I know that even I'm a sinner. I was just a nine-year-old kid, but I knew then I was a sinner. And I said, so I believe that you died on a cross. I believe you were buried. I believe that you rose again. And Jesus, I'm asking you right now to be my Savior. And when I did that, Jesus changed me for all eternity. He sealed me with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he took away any fear that I might have of whether or not I'll get to heaven. And he'll do the same for you if you humble yourself in that same way and pray just, God, I do believe in you. God, I do understand that I'm a sinner. God, I do understand now that there's no other way back to you except through Jesus. And so today I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. 
Jesus, be my Savior. Jesus, pay my sin debt. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. For every person, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who humbles themselves and reaches that point of understanding where, where I know there's nothing else, there's no other way but Jesus. Scripture says in 1 John 5, 13, these things are right to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. But I know some of you are thinking right now, wait a minute. I still want to know what's it going to be like? What's going to happen when we get there? Well, see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. I said, wait a minute, two weeks? Next weekend is Memorial Day weekend. And we want to honor especially those service people who have served our country, who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. That's what Memorial Day is all about. And so we're going to suspend the series for one week, and we're going to have an amazing, special Memorial Day service next week. In that service, every veteran who has ever served is going to be recognized. In fact, if you're on active duty, we're going to ask you to wear your uniform. If you're retired from service and you can still get into your uniform, which very few of us can do, then you wear your uniform too. And we're going to have a very special speaker from Southcom. Is the, is the headquarters of the United States military that, that defends the southern hemisphere, the South American, the Caribbean. Right down in Doral is our headquarters. He's an Air Force chaplain, Colonel Chuck Towery. In fact, a member of our church, by the way. And he's going to have some service people here. And they're going to do some flag-folding ceremonies. They're going to do some things that are absolutely amazing. Again, we're going to recognize anyone who has ever served. So I want you to invite all of your veteran friends here to come next week for a very special Memorial Day celebration. And then after that, we'll get back to answering these important questions about life after life. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are, for your mercy, for your glory, for your benevolence, for the guidance that you give us in your word. And Lord, I pray that you might burn into our hearts this morning, the reality that you keep your promises. You're going to keep your promises to Israel. You haven't thrown them away. You love them. They're still your chosen people. But so are we who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We're also your chosen people now. God, we thank you for the privilege of having been added to your family. Lord, bless us now and help us this week to to be living a life that is a bridge to others who have not yet heard. Lord, help us next week to be a bridge to our veterans and, and, and to other patriots of our country who will come and celebrate with us this very special Memorial Day weekend. We love you, God. Everything we do, we give to your glory and honor. As we receive our offering this morning, Lord, may our gifts be reflections of our faith. May be reflections of our trust in you. May they be reflections of our love for you. We give them in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Amen.